plans have been dashed and uh, things are not, you have no control of anything, what do you do then? How are, you, how are you supposed to live? Are you supposed to just revert back to your old sinful ways and your old habits and the ways you used to handle things? Or in that pressure cooker, are you to live for Christ? The point is you're to live for Christ, right? And that becomes a test of your faith, and that test of your faith produces endurance and strength And it produces what you and I actually need to continue on in this world. Because remember, we're aliens and strangers here. This is not our home. The kingdom of God is our home, and that's where we're heading. But until then, we have a job to do and a way to live, and that is to bring people to Christ, not only by our sharing of the gospel, but also by the way we live. So, so far, we have seen that the definition of submit is putting oneself under the authority of another and to take or to take a subordinate place. I, we already saw that the first application of this was governing authorities. The second application of this was masters uh, and slaves or, in the modern-day context, workers and bosses. And we looked at that last time. I also mentioned that if there is not a growing presence of submission in our hearts and in the community of believers. Usually strife fills that vacuum, and there's a bunch of disunity going on. People are bickering, complaining, grumbling, and all those things. None of those things honor God. None of those things are justified. We don't have any rights as believers. We give up our rights as believers, all right, so we can live for God. And in doing that, we see that those things were... Uh, so that what I was, what I'm saying is unity is enhanced through submission. And so it says submit therefore in verse, uh, in James chapter four, verse seven, resist the devil, uh, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submission, of course, to God through the word of God. That means we're heeding God's word. Submission to God through his will. That means we're given over to the will of God and we're learning more of what the will of God is every day. And then submission to God through his authority. God has putting, put certain authority structures in our life that we're to submit to in a proper way. We looked at governing authorities, husbands. Of course, we're going to be looking at husbands and wives in the next section of Scripture. And then, of course, elders and pastors. And then, of course, servants uh, to masters and young men to elders. All right. So even though we, we don't have slavery like they had in the Roman Empire, what Peter wrote does apply to employers and employees, employment uh, being that in a free capital capitalism and uh, socialism type of setting is difficult to compare to uh, the first century household servants, as it uh, mentioned here in our text. So, so far we have covered this. Uh, The principle, the first principle for the Christian to submit as servants, of course, that was uh, your employer is due respect in verse number 18, servants be submissive to your masters with all respects And then also your employers, they are due respect regardless of their disposition. Verse number 18 of chapter 2, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. We looked at that last week. And one of the amazing things about 
that text and this section of Scripture is that the passage never says to followers of Christ to organize some kind of revolt or social uh, type of program where they're coming against that or to take up weapons or to be disloyal, to take the law into our own hands, to have any kind of revenge or to bring slavery to immediate end. No, that is not the way a Christian undermines that institution of slavery. They do it actually by uh, putting these principles into practice that the Lord's put in place because the Christian is an earthly slave, but at the same time they are Christ's free man, and we are to view slavery or servanthood in a different way and that way we're to view that as a platform for evangelism. So the, the main emphasis here is how the Christian is to function within their existing conditions and with the way in which the Christian conducts and behaves themselves in those conditions. All right, so the only reason for submitting to unreasonable and harsh masters or employers is because it pleases the Lord. The motive for the Christian is to submit to ser- as servants to always please the Lord with the desire, of course, to have the Lord's approval, but also with a goal to be able to share the gospel. And, the, of course, the, the, ult- the underlying motive is to want to please God. So that would bring us to the motive, which we looked at already. In verse number 19 of chapter 2, it says, For this finds favor if, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears under up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So, of course, here it is the taking abuse, keeping God in mind while we're going through it, knowing that God is uh, knows everything that's happening in your situation, and then, of course, taking also abuse to have or uh, not to lose God's favor by, of course giving in to the flesh and allowing the flesh to dictate and not the Holy Spirit to dictate. All right, so in doing that, suffering when we do deserve it, in verse number 20, it says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? What credit is there if you're actually being, uh, you're suffering because you sinned, because you did what was wrong? You're, You're paying the price for that. There's no credit for that. And then in verse 20, there's suffering when you don't deserve it, where it says in verse 20, the middle of the verse, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So again, God knows everything going on, and it finds favor with God when we actually live that way. Is that hard to do? It is completely difficult to do, uh, especially if you are not depending on the Holy Spirit, you're just depending on yourself. You can't do it. You have to depend on God and his truth to be able to actually live that way. So the Lord knows and he sees the kind of service one offers up, but the one offering up good service should also know that the Lord recognizes and rewards for good service, like it says in Ephesians 6, 7, with goodwill, render service as to the Lord and not to men. And then, of course, we came to verse number 21, and we stopped in the middle of the verse, 
The purpose uh, for the Christian to submit as saints, and that is, of course, our calling, found in verse number 21, for you have been called for this purpose. And what purpose is that? We have been called to suffer. We have been summoned to suffer. And I asked you last week, did you ever ponder that? That, you know, when you became a Christian, you didn't realize that you were not only saved by God to, uh, for the blessings that come, but you were also saved for the cost of being a Christian. And there is a cost of being a Christian. And the cost is that you are going to be, have some level of suffering in this world uh, that you're going to have to respond to in the right way so that you are called to suffer because you are a Christian. And the scripture that we looked at last time was this in Philippians 1.29 on the screen. It says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So the subject of suffering will be more developed in the later chapters of Peter, but I gave you some reasons why we actually do suffer, and here they were, we suffer suffer for doing what is right. right? It says in 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. A second way you suffer is it's God's will. You suffer according to the will of God. Actually, the Lord, by his will, brings suffering into our life for a very specific purpose, to mature us. When things are going really good in your life, you don't grow spiritually. You don't. It's only when the trouble comes that you have to be, and, and now that our faith needs to be tested. We have to know that we're really believers and that through the testing of our faith, we remain following the Lord and we actually get stronger during that time. And then suffering for our testing and being a Christian where it tells us in the word of God, but to this degree you, have, you share in the sufferings of Christ uh, in First Peter chapter Four, where in verse number 12 it says, verse number 13, 14, it says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian... He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So, I ended last time asking a few questions. One of the questions was, why aren't you suffering? It could be, I said, because you're hiding in the forest and nobody knows you. You're staying under the radar you're staying out of sight as much as possible. Second thing I ask is that maybe it's, not, it's because you're not living a holy life and a godly life. For the Bible does say to us that if you uh, live a godly life, um, you're going to be persecuted. Um, 
And maybe you are not suffering because you are not a believer at all. And uh, that's the possibility. Self-deception to believe that you're something that you're not when you produce no fruit as a believer is, is a very serious diagnosis of your condition, spiritual condition. So we have to answer those questions honestly. But in all that, it says there, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's given. Now, most of the persecution in First Peter was by way of insults, word persecution. And then, of course, it did lead to physical persecution. But I want you to notice something in First uh, Peter chapter 5. Look at verse number 10. Because suffering is actually short-lived and has a goal and a reward connected to it. It says in 1 Peter 5.10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's because of suffering that the Lord is able to make this promise to us, uh, because he calls us to eternal glory. We are heading to the kingdom of God, and while we are heading there, the Lord promises us that he's going to perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's going to do that. You don't do that. He does that to you. As we do what we're supposed to do, he takes care of all the rest of the things that we could never do. And so that gives us great confidence in God. But brethren, we are not left without an example of suffering, in which an example actually to emulate. And of course, Jesus is our example for suffering. No one suffered to the extent he suffered. All through his whole time on this earth, he suffered. So now, this morning, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to chapter 2, We're going to be looking at the middle of verse 21 and look at, of course, the pattern, the purpose and the pattern for the Christian to to submit to and actually follow as saints. Our calling in suffering is to follow Jesus' example. And it says in verse 21, look there, It says, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. See, Jesus' death was vicarious and substitutionary. It tells us in Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God and our God and Father. So in our text, we see the first thing in this section is that Jesus is our great example in his life, the way he lived life, the way he responded to the suffering that came his way. We are to do the same. God's not asking us in Scripture to do something we cannot do. He's asking us to do what he actually did. But he's asking us to do what also he didn't do. 
Now, let me explain that. Christ is the model sufferer. Why? Because Christ did not receive a crown of glory without a crown of thorns. He could have never saved us without the cross. He had to go that way. It was God's will for him to to go that way. So that the term example in our text brings to mind the thought of an outline or a copy that Christ leaves us a drawing that is to be placed on another sheet underneath to be traced over. And it says here that we are to follow his example and then follow in his steps, walk in the steps that he walked in, to follow in the direction that he is going. If you're going to walk in the steps somebody walked in, you've got to follow behind them, right? And you've got to put your foot in that step that he took, and as we do that, we will find that we are going to be do, we're going to be able to do what Christ asks us to do, to follow in the direction he's going and to patiently endure wrong treatment. That's the point. So what did Jesus actually, what, he, what, what didn't he do? What Jesus did not do is we're looking at first. Well, verse number 22 of chapter 2 knows what it says. The first thing he did not do is what? who committed no sin, right? It's telling us about the character of Jesus. He committed no sin. It says in our text there very plainly, he committed no sin. So if sinless, he must have been suffering for someone else. So Jesus suffered as an innocent one, as as somebody who was not guilty, because there was no sin in him at all whatsoever. In our text in 2 Corinthians, it says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we may become the righteousness of God in him. It's amazing when you look at Scripture that when we talk about Christ being our substitute and dying in our place, we also have the point being made in Scripture that we would become righteous, that we would live a righteous life, that not only that, but the righteousness of Christ would be put on our account. So that's what the Lord did not do. He did not sin because of who he was and his mission. He was the perfect Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, so he could not have sinned at all. And then also, we come to the second thing that the Lord did not do in verse number 22 of 1 Peter chapter 2, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now, as we go along in this passage, you're going to find that there's going to be references. In fact, Peter is drawing from Isaiah 53 in his whole, this whole section of Scripture. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to keep your hand there in 1 Peter, turn to the Old Testament, to Isaiah 53, and I want you to notice the verses that come behind and actually some of the same things, the verses say in the Old Testament, Peter actually says in this epistle. So the second thing that he did not do is that found in verse number 
22, nor was any deceit found his, in his mouth. Isaiah 53, verse number 9, notice what it says. It says, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. So in other words, that the people who don't believe that Isaiah 53 is actually talking about Christ, Peter is saying here, it is definitely talking about Christ. You cannot make that mistake. It is talking about him. He is the only one who was able to do these things. And so what was the second thing that Jesus did not do? He did not use words to bring insult. He did not do that. There was no deceit found in his mouth at all whatsoever. And then another passage in Isaiah 53, and it says this in verse 7. It says in verse number 7, And while, or excuse me, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So a second thing that Jesus did, didn't do, was he did not open his mouth at all whatsoever when it came to repeated abuses. And the abuses became worse and worse and more vile and more cutting. Now, just think of that for a moment. What about us? When it comes to repeated abuse by somebody, verbal abuse, insults that are flung at us, because of the rebellion or the rebellious nature that we have that is still remaining sin, the first thing that we want to do is we want to lash back, right? And, of course, that little thing that flaps in your mouth called the tongue, it wants to establish itself as a greater authority than the one who's insulting you. And we find it very, very, very difficult to restrain our words, don't we? Why is that? Well, James chapter 3, verse 8 says this, But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never harm me. Boy, that's the biggest lie that ever came out of hell. Words stay with you usually till you die. It's logged in there, especially things that were insults, things that put you down, things that came against you that really discouraged you. You don't forget those things. Matter of fact, we have to be careful that we don't dwell on that in our mind because we're not going to be able to carry this out if we do. The Spirit of God helps us to restrain our words, to choose words that are encouraging, it says in Ephesians. And you go to Proverbs, there's so many verses that talk about words. In the power of your tongue, it says in Proverbs, you have the ability to give life or to give death. Words can do that. No, no, no nuclear bombs could do it. Words can do. Words can kill somebody while they're still alive. That's what it can do, and they are powerful. So what is the example we have here in Scripture that we are to learn to watch our words before anything rolls off your tongue? Think about what the implications of that. 
thinking about if you wanted to receive what you're going to say to that person. No matter how they're harming you or how they're coming against you, if we're going to walk in the step, footsteps of Jesus, we have, to re- re- we have to restrain our tongues, right? And only for the use of edification, building people up, encouraging pe- people to press on in the hard times. When we do that, that's when we, f- we know the power and the strength of God coming into our life. It says in Matthew chapter 27, in verse 12 to 14, It says, and while he was being accused by the chief priest and the elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they are testifying against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Why was he amazed? Why was he amazed? Because this is not normal in the human being, to not say something. Don't people say, why didn't you just say something? No. You have to decide as a believer when you say something and when you don't say something. You have to decide that. You have to decide it, in fact, before it happens. You have to decide it every day you wake up, how you're going to use your tongue. To that boss that's not so kind to you, to that customer that's always wants to, give, wants to give you a tongue lashing, or to that person who has a tongue sharper than a razor. What do you do with those people? How do you handle them? See, they can get to you. See, that's it. They can get to you. They not oppress people's buttons. What do you do? That's when I need to respond correctly. Because you know what? That person needs the Lord. If I respond just like them, I'll never have a chance. They'll just say, well, you're just like me. Well, no, we don't want to to be just like the way we used to be. As Christians, we want to be different. That's what we want to do. And if we're going to walk in the footsteps of the Lord, then we have to follow his footsteps. Can we restrain our tongue? Yes. That's the point. I can actually do that because God gave me the strength to do that, and I am blessed when I do do that. So Jesus That's what he did not do. He did not bring insult with words. And the Lord could have called legions of angels to fight on his behalf, and he did not do that because if he did that, we could not have been saved. The cross would have never happened. Jesus had to fight the battles for us in order to save us. So he did not use words to bring insult. Now back to First Peter, and you notice that there is a next thing that he did not, uh, the next thing that he did not do is that he did not use, it says in verse Peter 2.23, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Now this is just a higher level of Verbal abuse, but it's also not leading someone to violence. In other words, that Jesus is saying here in in the text that he did no violence. In fact, if you're right there in Isaiah chapter 53, look at verse number 9, what it says. It says, his grave was assigned to with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence. See, Jesus did not resort to 
violent threats at all. He didn't go to blows with anybody. Jesus was called a demon-possessed man. He was called a glutton, a wine-bibber. He was called a blasphemer. He was called delusional by his own family. He was called a perverter of the nation, a deceiver of people. And yet Jesus never strayed in word and deed. He never got upset unjustly. He never used anyone for a laugh. You won't find that in the character of Jesus. He suffered verbally, physically, spiritually, yet never threatened retaliation on his tormentors, but endured for who? He endured for us. He endured for us. He lived at a level of righteousness that we could have never have lived, and he did it for us. So, in other words, that Jesus Christ did all those things, our great example, by his life, and we can actually exemplify that example and walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Okay, now that we saw that what he didn't do, what did Jesus actually do? What did he do? Well, verse number 23, it tells us there. It says, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So while being abused, while having these things hurled at him, what was he doing? He was actually handing himself over to the one who judges righteously. So that's the first thing the Lord did under this title, that Jesus is our great substitute in his death. And in this treatment, he did not, he did not handle, hand himself over uh, to, the, to his betrayers. He handed himself over to his father. That's what he kept doing. Jesus left judgment, in other words, to God, rather than to take action himself against his enemies. And he did it how? He did it, he suffered calmly, and he suffered patiently. And when we trust God, because, why did he do that? Because he had confidence in his father's will. He has confidence in his father's, uh, what his father was doing as far, as far as Jesus having to go to the cross to die for sinners. He, he had confidence in that, and so he kept patiently and calmly entrusting himself to the Father, saying, Father, I trust you. I don't, you know, now, we could say it like this, Father, I trust you, but I don't understand everything that's going on. I may not have all the answers to my questions that I have. I may never have those answers, but Father, because of who you are, because of the love that you displayed and demonstrated to me, I know now by the cross of Jesus Christ, and because of the promises that are in the word of God, I am entrusting myself to you during this trial, during this time of suffering. In other words, we could never, ever take vengeance. Ever. In fact, let's take our Bibles and turn to a passage. Let's turn to Romans. I know you're in Isaiah. I know you're in 1 Peter. But turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 19 through 21. Because it kind of gives us a, a real situation here in which we can actually practice what Paul was telling to the Romans in their suffering. 
And it says in Romans chapter 12, verse number 19, it says, never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, here's the the situation. While you're calmly and patiently waiting on God, what are believers to do? When it's against us, what what do we do? How are we to respond? Well, look what it says in verse 20 of Romans 12. It says this, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, you know that phrase there that you'll heap burning coals on his head, that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. Because what the people used to do is that if somebody ran out of fuel for either cooking or heating their home, they would put a container on their head, and they would run through the little village, and the people who had any extra coals or something, they would throw it on, on top of him, heaping coals on his head, all right, so he can go back, and he can cook his food, and he can warm his house. You see that? See, that's a good thing. See, in other words, when your enemy comes against you, don't respond like you, that person's an enemy, and, and so I'm on the other side, and I'm to come against them. No. But treat your enemy this way? To me, I read that passage of Scripture like that, and I said, in my old days, that'll never happen. You know? When I was in the Marine Corps and all that stuff was in your head, I said, that's not going to happen. You know what I mean? And, and yet, this is what God's called us to. And I believe there's more power in this to overcome and restrain than in anything else. Now, in saying all that, remember, Jesus... Uh, handed himself over to the Father. But ironically, if you search out Scripture, you're going to find that Judas handed Jesus over out of greed. The priest handed Jesus over to Pilate out of envy and self-righteousness. Pilate handed Jesus over to soldiers out of cowardice. And then, of course, on the cross, Jesus handed himself over to God for vindication, for our vindication. See, that's what he did for us. He didn't do that. That leads to the second thing, back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 24, and it says this. Here's something that he did. He carried and he himself bore our sins in his body. So what did Jesus do in that text? Well, Jesus handed himself over to the Father, but he also carried our sins away. And is that not a big thing? That's a huge thing. In fact, back in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 and 5, if you're there, if you notice what it says, and I'll read it there, it says, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, that the chastising for our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging we are healed. In that, describing the substitutionary atonement 
of Christ, and there's four things in substitution. And now here's, here's the passage. Is this, that in, in substitutionary atonement in Scripture, we find forgiveness of God, we find the cleansing of God of those who have sinned, we find the averting of God's wrath in that. We also find ransom in that. Like it says in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark 10, 45, to give him his life a ransom for many. So his life was a ransom, a price paid to effect release of one who was held in bondage. The ransom was offered to God the Father against whom we have sinned and who alone has the power to inflict the penalty of sin. So then Jesus saw us, caught in the slave market of sin, and had pity on our helpless situation by paying the ransom price with his own blood in order to redeem us out of slavery, to bring us into the family of God. That Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross purchased the release from bondage of those many sinners who believe in him. And in, in saying that, in Isaiah 53, if we were going to take the whole thing together, we'll see that there's actually two things going on in Isaiah 53. The, the suffering servant's willingness to actually suffer for sinners. He suffered for others by submitting to the Father willingly. He also benefits us He benefits those who suffer. In other words, his punishment, our peace. His wounds, our healing. The sufferer also willingly and deliberately took on sin, sin on himself in his act. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. But also, it was the Lord's intention that he did that. In Isaiah 53, verse 10 and 11, we see that God himself acts to lay the people's sin upon the servant and to punish him with, as a guilty person. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 9, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if if he would render himself as a guilt offering. See, Jesus' submission to the Father's will exemplified a unity of the Father with the Father and the Son together within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. So he actually cooperated, submitted to his Father's plan in order for us to have the offer of redemption preached to us. Suffering, the suffering servant is himself sinless. We already saw that. The servant suffered not for his own sins, but for the sins of others, which he bore willingly. And, of course, a guilt offering he became, bearing their sins so that they may escape punishment. Now, I just just think about how Isaiah put that. He said that, the Lord would become a guilt offering. And I thought of that for a minute, and I went back and I looked at a few texts, and I said, what does he mean by that in the sense of 
What, what is the extent on which Christ died for our sins? Now, if I ask you this, do you think Christ died for your unintentional sins? Do you think Christ died for the sins that you didn't ignorant, you didn't even know you were sinning? What about the sins you forgot? Did he die for them? See, that's what it means that Jesus became a guilt offering. He became guilty as a sinner for you and I. So we wouldn't be guilty. Now, again, take your Bibles. I know you're looking at a lot of things up. Leviticus. I want you to see this passage of Scripture. Leviticus chapter 5. Verse 16 to 19. When I was first going through the Levitical, the five Levitical offerings, and I came across this section of Scripture, it quite intrigued me because I never thought of it like this. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 16 through 19. Notice what it says in verse 16. I want you to notice in the text about what it says about a guilt offering. It says in verse 16, He shall make restitution for that which he has sinned against the holy thing, and shall add to it a fifth part of it, and give it to the priest. The priest shall then make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and it will be forgiven him. Verse 17, Now if a person sins and does anything of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. Did you get that? If you're unaware of a sin, you're still guilty and you will bear the punishment. All right, then look at verse 18. He is then to bring to the priest a ram without defect from the flock according to your valuation for a guilt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his error in which he sinned unintentionally and did not know it, and it will be forgiven him. And then notice verse number 19. It is a guilt offering. He certainly, he was certainly guilty before the Lord. So the Lord, the word of God is saying, listen, unintentional sins, sins done in ignorance, Sins you didn't even know you committed, you're still guilty for them, and you will be punished for them. See, that's what Christ did. He became our guilt offering. He became the one that was guilty for us. So see, the, the purpose of Jesus bearing our sins is not expressed so much in terms of freedom from the guilt of sin, but freedom from the control of sin, resulting in the power of a trans formed life. As it says in Corinthians, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live might live not, they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The point being that he bore our sins to the extent of even our unintentional sins, so that we can be saved and we can live. That's what he did. Back to 
First Peter, and notice in verse number 24, there's the next thing that Jesus did. He took the curse from them and expiated the curse. In verse number 24 of chapter 2, it says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, or it could be read on the tree, on the zulon. That, that means tree. Now, of course, that's significant because we know that the Bible tells us that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that we know from Galatians 3 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, have becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on that curse instrument, on where the instrument in which God pours out his wrath. Isaiah 53, 12 Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Those are some of these passages that back up what the Lord did, taking the curse of sin for us and paying for that curse completely and fully so we wouldn't have to pay for it at all. Galatians, again, says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. We didn't have to hang on the tree because Christ did it for us. He was our substitute. He was the one who vicariously died in our place. And then there's another thing that the Lord did, which really is the conclusion of all these things he did. And it was this, that he bore our sins so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. Look what it says in verse 24, the last part of the verse, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what it's been saying the whole time in 1 Peter, that if you are a believer, you will die to the authority of sin over your life, being able to say no to it, and you will now live righteously in the right way that pleases God. See, sin must be shed before righteousness can be embraced. And my friends, that if it were not for Jesus coming to this earth to serve, to submit willfully, and willingly to the Father's will, we would all be without hope. And why? Because we are sinners with with nothing to offer God. Yet the Lord responded to sinful humanity who had nothing to offer him by offering himself to them as a servant, as someone who submitted as a slave to the Father's will so that we can be saved. So that leads to the last thing it says about Jesus in our text, and it's this. 
Jesus is now our watchful shepherd in heaven. That's what he is to us now. In fact, what is the result of Christ's submission to redemptive suffering? What results does it bring? You know what it brings? It brings this result. It brings our conversion. That's what it brings. Look at verse number 24, the last part of it. It says this, For you... For by his wounds you were healed. Brethren, this does not, is not talking about physical healing. People like to claim this. Um, the healers like to claim this passage of Scripture. What it's saying here is, is that by Christ's stripes and wounds, that sin had... See, by Christ's stripes, the wounds that sin had afflicted are gone. That's what it means. In fact, the picture is appropriate because slaves were usually whipped and scourged, which left bleeding stripes and welts. But by these scourgings being administered to Christ's body on that cursed tree, actually brings healings because Christ saves us from any further suffering and punishment by saving us from eternal death. What were we before conversion? What were we before conversion? Are you there in Isaiah? All right. Lost, right, but how does that look? Look what it says in Isaiah 53.6. I want everybody to turn there if you haven't yet. Isaiah 53, verse 6. Oh, as soon as you see this passage, you say, well, I know that passage. This is what it says, Isaiah 53.6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The first part of that passage of Scripture is before conversion. In fact, Peter says it like this, the passage that I didn't read yet, in verse number 25, he says it like this. For you were continually straying like sheep. Wandering sheep have no direction. As I said before, sheep are the dumbest animals on earth. If, you, if, you, if somebody doesn't lead them, they will fall off the cliff. If someone doesn't feed them, they will starve to death. If a wolf comes into the den, they have no defense at all. They don't have sharp teeth. They have no claws. They can't run fast. They're just, but you know what? That's us. We, we're just got, we just got a big old target on us. No matter where you go, you're going to get hit. That's who we are. So wandering sheep have no direction. They no one to look after them, no one to protect them while they're in sin. See, our past life was already captured in the first part of 1 Peter. If you, if you forgot what it said there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, Peter says, it says, you were in former lusts 
which were yours in your ignorance. You lived by lust, your own lust and passions, your sinful lust and passions, and you, you did it, you did, did that ignorantly. Whatever way your lust and passions guided you, that's where you went. And then he says also this in 1 Peter 1.18. He says, from your, you were saved from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. So whatever you were, what was passed down to you from someone else, who their sinful life, and their example, if they were sinners and not a believer, uh, they passed that down to you. So one generation passed down their sin to the next generation. How could you escape that? See, sin ultimately separates us from God, and that's the point here. We wandered because we, we were separated from God. Jesus offered to pay our debt to God. God's justice requires that sin be punished. Jesus paid the full debt. That's how it goes. So where does conversion lead to us? Let's go back to 1 Peter and notice what it says in verse 25. And let me read the whole verse again. It says this, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now... You have returned to the shepherd and guardian guardian of your soul. I couldn't say that word. That never happens to you, though. So, in fact, most linguists believe that the word is not return, but it's the word turn. Because we were never following him in the first place, if you were a Gentile. How can I return to someone I was never following in the first place? So it's the word turn. I now, by the gospel of Christ, I turn to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. The eternal part of you is now brought under the leadership of Christ who watches out for our welfare as his children and who of course, assumes leadership of his flock. That's what Jesus does. Jesus, who is the great shepherd and overseer of our eternal soul, will lead us safely home. So in other words, following in the steps of Jesus leads right into heaven. Conversion brings us to the shepherd. Jesus said already, or it says John said in his epistle, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. So when we become believers, we know who our shepherd is, and he's a good shepherd. And he's a shepherd that will never steer us wrong, will never lie to us, will always protect us. In fact, this is, I think, the only place that shepherd and Uh, the word overseer is put together referring to Christ. That because of his accomplishment on the cross, he now oversees our life. He's in charge. He's the one protecting us. So summing up the matter of this whole section is to say whatever existing condition we as Christians find ourselves as servants You and I are to regulate our conduct by Christian standards and are to act in accord with Christian principles. 
all because believers are in a different family. They have a new father. They live before the, the Lord's eyes every moment of every day. Children of God are to do the will of God and prove themselves to be slaves of Christ. Slaves that are bought with his blood. Slaves that are dwelt within by his spirit. Slaves that are manifesting their relationship by the way they perform their daily tasks. Christians should always be industrious. They should always strive to be honest. They should always strive to control their tongues and their actions. They should always strive to be trustworthy, always strive to be truthful and reliable and always helpful. And the, the first person that could encourage someone to, to take another step, to breathe another breath of air, to go another mile. See, all that is how we evangelize, too. We don't just evangelize by preaching the gospel. We evangelize by both. Because your life can actually cancel out the message of the, the gospel. You want, it to, you want to adorn the gospel. You want to make the gospel look good by the way you live your life, by the way you act, by your behavior. So, saying all that, what are some principles and applications this morning? Just quickly, first one is, it has to be this, that Jesus Christ alone has provided atonement for our sins. No one else has done that. There is no one like Jesus Christ. Secondly, an individual either comes to Christ or rejects him. There is no middle ground. There is no second chance after this life. That's what the Bible teaches. You must come to Christ now, today, if you haven't. If you've been putting it off, or if you've been thinking about it, don't think about it anymore. Do it. Come to Christ, because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Right? Nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. Next. God's grace gift of salvation must result in positive change in the believer's behavior. That's not the one I gave, is it? All right, there it is. Well, that means the believer should make progress in dealing with their anger, their hatred, their hypocrisy, their envy, and their slander. Those are things we have to work on every day. And then, next, unity should characterize the relationships and interactions of those who follow Christ because they are practicing submission and following the example of Jesus. That's what we're doing when we do those things. And then lastly, you may have to endure unjust suffering and should do so in the spirit and example of Jesus, being always conscious of the presence of God. Those are some things that are principles, eternal principles that we are to always be putting in, thinking, putting in practice and thinking about every day of our life. So, looking at this passage of Scripture and all the things that, that were, was contained in it, I pray that we would just realize that Christ 
has been our great example. And we, he is the one we're to follow. And the things that he did not do and the things he did do uh, are go together. We can't do the things, of course, he did do. Uh, he did that for us. But we can do the things that he did not do. And that is to live our lives in a way before the world under persecution, under suffering that honors him and pleases him in those things. And in doing so, God will actually give us opportunity to share the gospel because the end result is conversion. It was the end result for Christ's suffering. It will be the end result for our suffering to lead others to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your tremendous grace to us. Lord, your word is clear. It's to the point. And it is practical. We could actually put it in place in our life on a regular basis. So I pray, Lord, that we would live according to these principles and give us the strength of your spirit that when we really come to a place that's really testing our faith, that, Lord, we would be able to stand strong and mature during that time and that you would build our endurance during that time. Help us to put these principles into practice. And, Lord, I pray we'd walk away joyful because of the great things that you've done. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.